chapter 3 today, uh, where we're going to begin a a new section in the letter that begins uh, in chapter 3, verse 1. It's going to run all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. And if you've read ahead, you might notice that, or even if you hadn't, I'll point it out, that this section, bookended by 3, 1, and 4, 1, uh, it's bookended by two commands. So if you're looking at chapter 3, verse 1, the command there is rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. And then if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, the command there is stand firm thus in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So those two ideas, rejoice in the Lord, stand firm thus in the Lord, those two ideas bookend this little section of of the letter. And so this section is intended to help them do those two things, to to rejoice in the Lord and to persevere joyfully in Him. Uh, And I think 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 he paired those two things together because I think the first command helps to serve the other, that we will persevere in Christ uh, more faithfully, the more joyfully we find ourselves in Him. Anyway, I love how in our passage today, Paul begins that simple exhortation with the simple gospel. This is one of the great, I put it in the group yesterday, this is one of the great gospel passages in the New Testament. The gospel's everywhere in the New Testament, obviously, but there are some passages, you know, that just seem to crystallize it better than others. I mean, there's, there's some passages that just in one single solitary verse, you, you get the whole gospel. It would be like an easy one to use if you're sharing the gospel with somebody. There's just like a couple of places where in a single verse you get the whole gospel. Think of like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whole gospel right there in one verse. Or think 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, whole gospel. Those are just single verses. But then there are some that are just a little longer than one verse, like a whole passage that really capture even more thoroughly the the crystal clear gospel. And this passage today is is one of those. Paul is, and and I think, and this is one that I think if you were if you were just reading the Bible with somebody, they, there was an unbeliever, and they were they agreed to read the Bible with you. I think this would be a great passage to turn to and just walk through it, and it just lays the gospel out for them. But I think Paul, in putting it here in, in Philippians, he's writing this to a church. He's showing us that this gospel isn't just for unbelievers. It's for believers. It's for us, for our joy, and for our strength to persevere. Well, that said, let's let's look at it for ourselves. We need to read the passage. And so if you found that chapter, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 through verse 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And as we come, we submit ourselves to it, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see uh, the, the, the clear truth of the gospel in these words. Would you give us eyes to see it, minds to to apprehend it, uh, and, and, and understand it thoroughly? Would you give us hearts to embrace it and love it? And, um, you know, as Paul would tell the Thessalonians, to love the truth and so be saved. Would you give us wills to then live according to this truth that we know and love? Would you give me the help that I do need to teach this morning? Give us all ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us in the word. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the meat of this passage really begins in verse 2. But I love what Paul says in verse 1. Look at at verse 1 again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And we've already mentioned that that command and that admonition to rejoice in the Lord. That's going to be the aim of this section. It's the immediate aim of why he's going to remind them of the gospel in verses 1 through 11, that they would be reminded of the joy that they should have and is available to them in Christ when they remember what he's done for them and all that they have in him. But I love what he says after that. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I love that because it is so irrefutably true that repetition is a necessity in the Christian life. Repetition is a necessity in the Christian life. When a lot, when a lot of students come to Auburn for the first time and they're visiting around, well, what church am I going to go to? You know, they may visit several. They may be attracted to the church that every week they go, it seems like there's something exciting and new, right? Um, They may visit this one and it seems 
rather monotonous and we do the same things every week. I go to this church over here, it's exciting and new. And this is going to not just be a, 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 a thought you have to go through when you come to college, but when you graduate college, you move to the next town, wherever it is that you end up after graduation, you're looking for a church there. You can be faced with this church over here that seems to do the same thing every week, talk about the same thing every week, or this seems more exciting and something new every week. Which one do I, I pick? The Bible seems over and over again to point you to the boring one <laughs> and to the one that just hammers the same thing over and over again. Paul is saying that here to write the same things to you. It's no trouble to me. Safe for you. He's not the only one that says it. One of my favorite uh, indications there is from Peter in 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13. Listen, listen carefully to what Peter says. He's writing to, to, to believers and he says, in 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13, I intend always to remind you of these qualities or remind you of these things, though you know them. Not just that. And are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. I mean, he's telling, Peter tells them they didn't just know the truth. He knew they were established in it, right? And yet Peter knew as long as he was alive, as long as he had breath in his lungs, he's going to hammer that same nail and, re, and, remind, and, and, and to remind them of those same things again and again and stir them up by that. That's what Paul is saying here to the Philippians, assuring them that it's, it's no trouble to write the same things again and again to them. No matter how well they think they may know them, even if they know it well, Paul knows it's right. But, but notice what he says. Paul even says, not, not just this is no trouble to him, he says, it's safe for you. It's safe for you. Think about that. Why? Why is it safe for them? Because What's he implying by that? He's quite literally saying that we are in danger without constant reminders of the same things over and over again. We're in constant danger. Of what? Um, forgetting, the, forgetting these most important things? Ignoring these most important things? Out of sight? Out of mind? And, and because of that, being deceived away from these things? That's going to be the issue here, as we'll see in the main text. And those things put our perseverance in danger. So whenever you are looking for that church, and it's like, man, they just hit the same nail every single week. Man, stick to that place. As long as it's the truth that it's the nail they're hitting. Right? And if you're in your own personal Bible reading, you come to a passage like this, and you feel like, I've read it 3,000 times, and I just know it. But when you come to passages like this, don't skim it. Certainly don't skip it marinate in it, look for things, maybe even in, in this very familiar text, maybe things you haven't yet noticed about it. Dwell on every phrase. The Lord knows the reminders like these, they're good for us and they're safe for us. Well, that said, let's dive into the main text for today. And if you're taking notes, here's what I'm going to, I'll lay out what I want us to see in it. Main text is, is verses 2 through 11. And so within those verses, I, I'm just going to have two main points. Two main points. The first will be this. In verses 2 through 8, I want us to consider coming to Christ. Coming to Christ. In verses 2 through 8, 
Paul is really, in the bulk of it, he's really speaking pretty much autobiographically. Uh, he's talking about the, the things that he used to value before he came to Christ. And he talks about how he came to see those things differently as he came to Christ. Coming to Christ, verses 2 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to consider gaining Christ. Gaining Christ. That's the, that's the language that Paul uses. And it's in those verses, verses 9 through 11, where we find the gospel so clearly and salvation described from beginning to end. So we'll dive into it. Hopefully we'll have some time at the end, maybe to discuss around our tables, but certainly for Adam to lead us in the choir practice. So let's think first about verses 2 through 8, about coming to Christ. Look again at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he starts with a warning. Three times he says, look out. Look out for. But what is he warning them against? Well, he describes he describes them in three different ways. Dogs. <laughs> Paul. Man. I think we're we're probably but in the if you read church history, man, I think we're like we're the we're the new kids on the block who get offended so easily. Like they call each other dogs back then. Uh dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. That's 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 who he's talking about here. Well, who is that? Who are the dogs? Who are the evildoers? Who are the mutilators of the flesh? Well, when he says mutilators of the flesh at the end of verse 2, you get you get a little bit of clarification of what he's talking about when you look in the first part of verse 3, and he uses the word circumcision. We are the circumcision. So in the context, it seems clear that in verse 2, in this warning, Paul is, is talking about some who are trying to influence the, the Philippian Christians with a false gospel. Um. A false gospel that's rooted in in a, in a, in a mixture, a mixing of Judaism and Jewish law, Jewish custom with the gospel, mixing those two things together. We know that this was a common issue, not just in Philippi, but in the early church in general. How do we know that? Because think about think about the Book of Acts. You no, know, in in Acts chapter fifteen, you have recorded a a major council in the early church that took place in Jerusalem, uh, and 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 the and the the central issue at, in Acts 15 was what they were debating whether or not Gentile Christians, Gentiles who came to faith in Christ, did they need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses? And did they have to keep part of the, the law of Moses? And they're not saying, do, do they need to trust in Christ? They're saying, yes, you need to trust in Christ, but did you, do you also need to be circumcised? Do you also need to keep the law? And of course, you read Acts chapter 15, that was that view was rejected as antithetical to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's antithetical to that. But that didn't mean those false teachers went away. And those false teachers, come down to us known as Judaizers, um, kept preaching. And you read Paul's letters and you see them, you see Paul mention them when he writes his letters to the Corinthians. You see it majorly in his letter to the Galatians. And then you see it again. Seems like the same group that he's addressing here. And that's why I said earlier that the particular danger, when he said it's safe for you, the particular danger for them was that they're, they're being deceived away from the true gospel. And if you read how Paul talks, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, and how he talks about them in Galatians and Corinthians, you see the, the forcefulness with which Paul addresses 
this group in, in all these letters, it shows you what a dangerous and deceiving false gospel it was. It may not, it may not seem like that to us now. But in the early church, it had the potential to be a very destructive heresy. I mean, think about it. To, to Philippi, they're, they're, they're Gentiles who came to faith in Christ. They, they may not have the full biblical knowledge that a, a Jew might have, right? And, 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 a, and a false teacher could have said, hey, you know what? I know you're a Gentile, but Jesus Christ himself was a Jew. Jesus Christ himself kept the law of Moses. You want to be a follower of Christ? Don't you want to do what Jesus did, right? Um, and, and, and to somebody who may not be uh, uh, as, as familiar with all the scriptures as those false teachers were, that, that could appear very convincing to them. When they, they went and said, we're not saying you don't need Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus, right? But you also need to observe this law. You, you also need to, to do this thing that God himself said we're to do. I can show you in the Bible, right? And against, it's, it's against that heresy that, that Paul directs his ire in this passage. Paul's going to say that true Christianity is set apart from that gospel for more than one reason. And look at verse 3. He, he, in verse 3, he's going to show that you can know that that's a false gospel because Christianity is the fulfillment of all those things that Judaism was pointing, pointed forward to. It's not, we're not still a part of that. We've, this, we're experiencing the fulfillment of what those things were pointing forward to. Look, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. What's he saying there? He's telling them, you don't need to be circumcised because Old Testament circumcision always pointed to something other and greater than itself. Old Testament circumcision was always pointing to, A, the cross of Christ, and B, circumcision of the heart, right? And what the, even the Old Testament uses that phrase, circumcision of the heart. What is circumcision of the heart? It's, it's, it's a different way of talking about being born again by the Spirit of God. Circumcision of the heart is regeneration by the Spirit of God. And Paul is saying that when you come to Jesus, you're coming because circumcision has already taken place in you, the fulfillment of that. You've been circumcised of heart. That's why you came in repentance and faith. And when you come, he says, you glory in Christ Jesus. We, we worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus, which means you have put all of your eggs in his basket. All of them, none in your own for your hope and confidence before God. So he's saying to be a Christian is to realize that the eternal favor of God cannot be earned by anything you do. Anything you do. And that leads to Paul giving his second reason they need to reject that false teaching. And it's the testimony of his own life in verses 4 through 8. The gist of which is, if anybody had reason for confidence before God based on obedience to the law or any other basis in himself, Paul was that guy. Paul says in verse 4, if, any, if, any, uh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he's about to list those things that he considered badges of honor before God that, that surely, as he once thought, 
earned him favor before God. The corollary to us in our day would be just anybody who puts his or her hope in God based on anything in themselves, right? Surely God accepts me because of my good works or my good intentions or the things that I don't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. Um, Whatever it may be, anything in myself is the reason God favors me. That's, That's the corollary today. But Paul said if there's anybody who could have gotten ahead that way, it was him. And he begins itemizing his former merits, and he organizes them in two ways. First, by pedigree. Second, by performance. Right? So first, he talks about his pedigree. Verse 5. Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, that's just saying... From before I knew my right from the left, I was obeying the law. That's Leviticus 12, 3, circumcised on the eighth day. From, from birth, I, my, my life was in adherence to the law of God. So I was no convert to Judaism. I've been here the whole time, right? And he says, I was not only circumcised on the eighth day, I was of the people of Israel, of the people of Israel. That's actually saying more than it seems to say in English. When what he literally says, I was of the genus of Israel, the genus of it. He's saying he's basically talking about his genealogical purity. I am pure blooded Israelite, right? He says, I'm not just of the people of Israel, the genus of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe that produced Israel's first king. That's the tribe that stuck with Judah when all other ten tribes went their own way, right? That, that's the tribal territory where in Judges, that's where Jerusalem was. Paul's Hebrew name was Saul, perhaps named after Israel's first king. And he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's him saying, I was raised speaking the Aramaic dialect of Hebrew. That's Paul. That's Paul basically saying of himself that even though I was educated in the Greek system, I never bought into Greek culture, right? I was never taken in by it. I stayed strictly true to Judaism and the Jewish way of life. Strict adherence to the law, which gets into his performance. Not just his pedigree, but his performance. And he says at the end of verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee, most of you know who Pharisees were. They were the strictest adherents to the law. If you think what, and they were missionary about it, right? They were missionary about it. Why were they so strict in adherence to the law? Well, they, they thought, well, the reason that we, we got kicked out of our own land and the reason we have been passed around from ruler to ruler to ruler, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, than the Greeks, than the Romans. The reason is, we, when we were in the land, we were not obedient to the law. And as a punishment, God sent these oppressive rulers over us. So now, if we will just strictly bind ourselves to the law, maybe we can be obedient enough that God will send a Redeemer to overthrow these oppressive governments over us. So they were zealous about it. Remember Jesus said, uh, talking to the Pharisees one time, he says, you, you, you tithe mint and dill, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. 
right? What was he? He was, he was pointing out how scrupulous they were. When it, said, when it said that I needed to tithe, I'm going to my spice cabinet, and I'm, I'm looking at how much dill I have, and I'm going to give 10% of my dill and of my cumin and of anything else. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm, I'm going to down to the leaf I'm going to give, right? Man, strict adherence, missionary in it. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's interesting. Paul was exactly what Jesus described in John 16 too. In John 16 too, before he went to the cross, this is what Jesus told his disciples in John 16 too. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The, time, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's pre-conversion Paul. There are several places where Paul describes that, that zeal. Go, you don't have to turn there, but you jot down these references. Galatians 1, 13 and 14, Paul said, I, perse- I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Or Acts 26, verses 10 and 11. Paul said, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in, these are his words, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Why the zeal? He thought he was offering service to God. And he says at the end of verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's not saying he was sinless, but he's, he's saying to be blameless under the law because in the law there were systems in place for atonement when you sinned, right? Paul, Paul is saying, I would confidently put my record, my public record up against anybody's in keeping the law. Paul was proud of who he was and confident in everything he was doing, but then he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And he realized in a moment when he saw the glory of Christ, he realized all those things he was confident in didn't amount to much. In fact, he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And again in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul uses the word loss three times. Three times. and That's an accounting term that literally means a subtraction. Right? In other words, he's saying all those things that I thought were Additions weren't just neutral, they, they were subtractions. They actually were count, counted against me 
before God, not in my favor, to my demerit, right? And then he calls them rubbish, which is the most polite way of translating what he said. It can mean anything from trash to dung, right? I mean, he's saying his, his good works and his self-confidence were utterly worthless. Worthless. And Paul is saying in these verses that coming to Christ means that you give completely up all hope of being able to perform anything good to earn the favor and salvation of God. The very thing that the Judaizers were attempting to convince them to do. Sure, you need Jesus, but you also need to do this. Because if you do this, you do this, this will count before God. Paul would say those false teachers had never met Christ. That's why in verse 2 he calls them evildoers. But that gospel is one that Paul tells us in verse 1, we need to be reminded of again and again and again that no works of ours earn anything good from the Lord. And a lot of Christians, maybe a lot of Christians in this room would say they believe that, but we don't live like it. Right? That we, even as professing believers, even if we know this gospel, too many days we live in perpetual happiness or despair based on my performance, what I've done or what I've failed to do, however I conceive of that. And Paul is showing us in the clearest of terms that to come to Christ and to gain Him is antithetical to putting any stock whatsoever, ever, in our performance. To come to Christ, you have to come to the end of yourself and keep coming to the end of yourself. And that becomes all the clearer when we understand what Paul teaches in verses 9 through 11 about gaining Christ. Because they're mutually exclusive. You cannot trust in Christ and trust in yourself at the same time. Paul says in verse 8, that he suffered the loss of all things that he once counted as gain, and he counts them as worthless trash so that he could gain Christ. So let's think about gaining Christ. Paul says he quit relying on his works and his goodness, which to his former belief, he had a lot. He, said it, he says so that in verse 9, as he puts it, he could be found in him. That is, found in in Christ. That is a that is a huge idea in 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 the New Testament, specifically in Paul. This idea of union with Christ. Union with Christ. How many times do you see Paul especially uses phrases use phrases like in him? In Christ, with him, with Christ. When Paul says here, and be found in him, he's about to describe what it means to be in Christ. He's about to describe union with Christ. And it's diametrically opposed to anything you could earn or do for yourself. And he shows that when just after he says, and be found in him, In verse 9, interestingly, he says, not having, not having 
a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Isn't that interesting? Didn't he just say that there was a time when he considered himself blameless according to the law? Verse 6. Man, but when he met Christ and saw his glory, he realized, I don't have any righteousness. Man, what I thought, what I thought was obedience, it was just outward performance. Paul here is like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Isaiah was a, a prophet of God who when in a vision saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, woe is me. I am undone. But Paul desired to gain Christ and be found in him. But why? Because Christ would graciously give to him through faith everything that all the righteousness that he could not get for himself through his own efforts at trying to keep the law. Paul says, after saying he has no righteousness of his own from the law, he says in verse 9, he does have a righteousness, look at verse 9, that comes through faith in Christ. Notice the, notice the, the little phrases, the righteousness from God. From God, not for God, not to God, from Him. It's not going that way, it's coming this way. From God, that depends on faith. You see that subtle shift. We're tempted to try and earn a righteousness that we can offer to God when Christ and His gospel is offering us a righteousness from God. The perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ that he earned in his life. What, what is that that we often recite in the Heidelberg Catechism? I think we did it this past Wednesday. Without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if... As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner. As if, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept the gift of God with a believing heart. But to gain Christ and to be found in Him doesn't just gain you, Paul says in verse 10, doesn't just gain you the forgiveness of your sins, and the gift of His righteousness before God, it gains you a whole life of fellowship with Christ. Verse 10, knowing Him and the power of His resurrection, sharing in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. Paul knows that any suffering, any suffering for Christ is worth it because Christ will grant him the power of His resurrection in the midst of it. And any other alternative is loss. It's worthless trash. And Paul ends it in verse 11 looking forward to the promise of the resurrection. Paul has basically moved from justification in verse 9 to sanctification in verse 10 to glorification in verse 11. To gain Christ is to gain Him forevermore. And we don't have to worry about our performance. It's not saying That's not saying 
that once you come to Christ, you can live any old way you want to. If you do that, you haven't met Christ. But it is saying, if you know yourself a sinner and you want to live a life of repentance from that walk, when you come to Christ, you no longer have to worry about your failings because Christ's record is already perfect. It's granted to you by faith. And as Paul already told us back in chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in us will be faithful to carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is a good word for us to hear again and again and again.